0: Hey, y'all. It's Rima. So our second season of This Is Uncomfortable was technically supposed to end this month. But
1: because this is such an unprecedented time, we want to keep bringing you all new stories. And so through July, we're going to release a new episode every other week, and that'll officially kick off on June 4th, which is next Thursday. But in the meantime, I wanted to share an episode from another Marketplace podcast called The Uncertain Hour. Our colleagues over there are doing something really cool, sort of like a pop-up season that looks at why some people's livelihoods are getting hit harder by this pandemic and the history and policies that allow that to happen. Their latest episode is about the unemployment benefits system and why that system was designed to keep a lot of
0: people out I hope y'all enjoy it, and I will catch y'all very soon. Hey, Peter. Hey, Chrissy. So, you just did an interview?
1: I did, with a woman named Candice Gordon from Locust Grove, Georgia. And she told me about this dream she has for what she wants to do with her life.
2: I want to sell sex toys. What?
1: (laughs) Yeah, sex toys.
2: You know how you go in the hotel and it's got little vending machines and the ice machine and the vending machine has, you know, Cheetos and Snicker bars and stuff. Well, my vending machines, I'd have condoms and and lube and, you know, little mini vibrators and stuff
0: like that in the vending machine. Okay. (laughs) Not what I was expecting. (laughs) She
1: is very unique.
0: And so this connects to unemployment insurance. How exactly? Cause I know that's what we're supposed to be doing right now is an episode on unemployment insurance.
1: <laughs> I know, I know, I know, I know. The reason I originally called up Candice was because on Twitter she was tweeting all about unemployment. So here's her backstory. She's a single mom with three daughters, one in elementary and two in high school. Money's always been a bit tight. So until her sex toy vending machine empire gets off the ground, Candice has been waiting tables at Denny's and dealing with impatient customers.
2: Those quick comments, you know, oh, if I could get a little bit more coffee, you know, that'd be nice. Or, uh, you know, what are they doing back there waiting on the chickens to hatch the eggs where you kind of just have to grit your teeth and smile, you know, <laughs> and keep pushing.
1: But then one Sunday, the last weekend of March, as the coronavirus was spreading across the U.S., everything changed. Mm-hmm.
2: I walked up to the door and tried to pull the door open, damn door wouldn't open. And then that's when I saw the sign on the door that said, you know, Denny's will be closed until further
0: notice. And I'm like, what the hell? Why ain't nobody call me? Whoa, that's how she found out that she didn't have a job?
1: Yeah, she sees the sign. She's super confused and she circles around the back of the store and that's where she sees her manager.
2: Manager is like, yeah, we got to close. I got word, you know, um, early this morning. I was like, so what are we supposed to do? And she was like, um, y'all can try and find another job or you can file unemployment.
1: That week, Candace logged onto to Georgia's website to file for unemployment. And right away, there were all these hoops she had to jump through to prove she qualified.
2: They ask you if you were terminated. And if you were, they want to know why. Um, were you fired because you broke the rules in the employee handbook and if you did, did you know about the rules before, before you broke them? And, you know, I wasn't fired from, from Denny's. Um, I put, you know, I was let go because of coronavirus.
1: And Candace was approved. The state website said she'd get 365 bucks a week from Georgia, plus 600 from the federal government. 965 total, which was good because she had bills coming up.
2: I was thinking, OK, yeah, maybe I'm going to get my money this week. You know, didn't
3: get it.
1: No money that week, or the week after, or the week after. Mm. Yeah. And she wasn't getting any answers from the Georgia Department of Labor.
2: I call them literally 50 times a day. And the line is busy every time. Or it'll pick up and immediately hang up on you. Every time.
1: When Candace and I talked, it had been over a month since she'd been approved for unemployment benefits. But no money.
2: My rent's due. It wouldn't bother me as much sitting in this house if I knew that my bills were paid. Right. But I can't sit and do nothing comfortably wondering, you know, damn, when are my lights going to get cut off? You know, when they going to come and pick up my car because I can't pay the damn note? Like, why is it so hard for me to get my money?
0: Why is it so hard for people to get their money? It's a question that people are asking about unemployment benefits a lot right now. But there's also a related question that we want to talk about on this episode, about how hard it is to get unemployment benefits, period. And that is a problem that's not unique to this pandemic. It goes way back to the whole way our system was built. Because unemployment insurance helps a lot of people, but from the start, it was meant to exclude a lot of people, too. Welcome to The Uncertain Hour. I'm Chrissy Clark.
1: And I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen.
0: And right now we're bringing you a sort of emergency pop-up season to help make sense of this most uncertain hour we are in. And on this episode, we're going to take a look at this support system that is being strained beyond belief right now unemployment insurance. It's helped millions of Americans. More than $48 billion were paid out through the system in April alone. But we're also hearing a lot of complaints right now about the system, how hard it's been to get benefits.
1: And it's not just technical glitches because so many people are filing claims right now because of the pandemic. For many people, even in normal times, it's been hard to get unemployment benefits there are always some people who get denied because they just don't meet the criteria for unemployment insurance. Back before the pandemic, like last year, only 28% of unemployed people in the U.S. actually received unemployment benefits. And in some states like North Carolina, it was less than 10%.
0: And in some ways, that's how the system was built to work. It was never meant to cover everybody who's out of a job. It was designed to keep a lot of people out. The history of how we got the system we have is a fascinating story that gets at deep philosophical debates about who deserves help when they don't have a job and about how the legacy of racist laws still lingers in our current policies. And I asked one of our producers, Peter Balanon-Rosen, to help explain this.
1: So I guess let's start at the very beginning with the whole concept of being unemployed.
0: Because before we invented unemployment insurance, We had to invent the basic idea of what it actually means to be unemployed.
1: And that takes us to this guy.
4: I'm Lawrence Katz. I'm a professor of economics at Harvard University, and I am sheltering at home in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
1: And how has sheltering been going?
4: Uh, It's been going fine, learning the world of Zoom virtual teaching, Zoom office hours.
1: And Zoom interviews. Here we go.
0: Peter and I hopped on a Zoom video call with Larry Katz to chat about unemployment. Larry, by the way, was also chief economist of the U.S. Department of Labor under Bill Clinton. And the thing he told me that kind of blew my mind was that even just the concept of being unemployed didn't really exist until the 1800s.
4: You know, in a largely agricultural economy, there had been depressions and panics, but there was more of a sense of work sharing, going back to the farm and doing other things and not the modern term unemployment. That really came up with the growth of, you know, a modern manufacturing sector and larger employers and mass layoffs.
0: Are you sort of saying the idea was before the industrial economy, we weren't so tied necessarily to what companies were offering jobs. So it was more of like a hustle. We could figure things out or go back to the farm.
4: Yeah, I mean, people were thought of as self-employed, running their own businesses. There were hard times when business was lower or better, and maybe we would provide some food or some support. But the notion of unemployment and that you might tide someone over until work returns really is a modern concept.
0: Before in history, Larry says, if you didn't have work, it was kind of seen as your fault that you weren't working hard enough to find a job. You weren't considered unemployed. You were considered idle, lazy, and not really deserving of help. And that idea of deciding who deserves help, that's going to be key to our story.
1: Like super key. Because the idea that some people deserve help when they're out of a job and others don't is baked into the whole concept of who's considered unemployed, and eventually, who gets to get government unemployment benefits, even today.
0: So back in the 1800s, if you were out of work, there were poor houses and Oliver Twist's sort of charities where you could get reformed. But by the middle of the century, as an agrarian economy was rapidly transforming into an industrial capitalist economy, this guy you might have heard of named Karl Marx and his friend Friedrich Engels, they said often people were out of work not because they were lazy, but because capitalists like factory owners hired and fired workers based on how much profit they could make. That argument started to take hold when a recession hit in the 1890s and lots of people lost their jobs.
4: Then you start seeing mentions of the term unemployment, but we had no way of really measuring it.
1: Fast forward a few decades, the Great Depression hits, huge numbers of people are out of work, and the government decides to try to count how many people are unemployed. And that means it has to define unemployment. And we start seeing this division of people into two groups, the ones that count as unemployed and the ones that don't. So unemployment in the way we currently think about it is
4: the state of not having a job, but looking for a job. Like you actually contacted some employers, then you would be considered unemployed. And if you said, well, I sat around and I read job ads, but I didn't contact anyone, you would not be considered unemployed. You'd be considered out of the labor force.
1: Even under that narrow definition of unemployment, things were bad. As the Great Depression worsened and the unemployment rate ticked up to 23 24%, that couldn't be ignored. Politicians had to do something.
0: At the federal level, President Roosevelt, FDR, was a big believer in work. He thought people were better off working than getting cash for not working. So he thought the government should just straight up hire people. And we got the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration.
1: Employment has been provided for thousands of skilled and unskilled workers engaged in the preparation and equipment of parks and
5: playgrounds. President Roosevelt makes his first tour of the Civilian Conservation Corps camps in the Shenandoah Valley.
1: But this was the Great Depression. Historian Alice O'Connor from UC Santa Barbara says it was clear that FDR's work programs couldn't hire everyone who needed work. So he decided the government should go farther.
6: To protect us against what FDR famously called the vicissitudes of this very unstable capitalist system.
5: We can never insure 100% of the population against 100% of the hazards and vicissitudes of life, but we have tried to frame a law which will give some measure of protection to the average citizen and to his family against the loss of a job
6: The other thing I should point to here is that there's a sea change in economic thinking at the time, embodied in the person of John Maynard Keynes.
1: It is a wonderful thing for our businessmen and our manufacturers and our unemployed to taste hope again.
6: And Keynesian economic thought essentially said it is in the interest of everybody that these newly unemployed workers have some cash so that they can not only feed themselves and keep their families going, but so that they actually can circulate money in the economy and get it going again.
1: So at FDR's urging, Congress passed the Social Security Act in 1935, which included not just the Social Security system for old people, but this other system designed to help unemployed people. You can actually hear FDR hyping it up during one of his fireside chats.
5: The unemployment insurance part of the legislation will not only help to guard the individual in future periods of layoff against dependence upon relief, but it will, by sustaining the purchasing power of the nation, cushion the shock of economic distress.
1: And Chrissy, I will have you know, that is super hype by 1930s politician
0: standards. (laughs) Back when Americans sounded like we had British accents. (laughs) Exactly. So here's a quick rundown of how the system that they landed on works. The system we basically still have today. Every state designs their own unemployment insurance system. The benefits are funded through a tax on employers, which goes into a trust fund just for unemployment insurance. And the more a company lays off people the more that company gets taxed to a degree.
1: Unemployment benefits are available to people for a set amount of time, but only if they lose their job through no fault of their own and can prove they're looking for new work. So it doesn't cover everyone who's out of a job, but even so, the creation of unemployment insurance was a huge deal.
0: Let's pause for a second and think about what was accomplished here. For the very first time, our country had a system specifically designed to give cash payments to people who'd lost their jobs.
1: And it wasn't a one-off temporary relief measure like the Civilian Conservation Corps. This was a system designed to last for people who lost their jobs because their company went under or, I don't know, a pandemic happens.
0: Sounds familiar. And that is kind of amazing. Here's economist Larry Katz.
4: This was the the foresight for today that we actually have an unemployment insurance system. If millions of people lose jobs, we can actually provide support to them. If we'd had to set up a new institution to do that, we would be even more distressed than we are today. It really has been there for millions of people.
0: So our unemployment insurance system has been kind of world-changing for the people who can use it. But from its very creation, a lot of people have not been able to use it. And that had huge impacts, too. More about that after a break. So before the break, we were talking about how our country went from not really even having the concept of being unemployed to inventing a whole system of support for unemployed people, at least some unemployed people, the ones policymakers decided deserved it.
1: Right. There have always been people who didn't get access to unemployment insurance.
0: The biggest example of that came right at the beginning, when Congress first passed the law that created unemployment insurance. Bill Spriggs, an economics professor at Howard University, who's also the chief economist for the AFL-CIO, explained that written into that law was this catch that certain jobs didn't qualify for unemployment benefits, including two big ones.
5: Agricultural workers and domestic workers.
0: Agricultural workers, you know, farm workers and domestic workers, like housekeepers, nannies, which at first glance seems kind of technical and bureaucratic. Like maybe you think, oh, there must be something about those jobs that makes them harder to file paperwork on or fit into the system or something. But actually, the reason those two job categories were originally excluded from unemployment insurance goes to something much deeper and uglier.
1: So, backstory on this one. In order to get any of the New Deal legislation passed into law, including unemployment insurance, there had to be buy-in from politicians across the country, including the Southern Democrats. And they had a very particular world order they were trying to enforce,
5: one of white supremacy. The signs were obvious, (laughs) literally. They would have above the water fountain, colored only, white only. And the South did not want that disturbed. And repeatedly, throughout every piece of legislation in the New Deal, they tried their best to ensure that system would not be challenged.
0: At first, in early New Deal legislation, way before we got to unemployment insurance, white Southern Democrats were really explicit about what they wanted to put into the laws. It's in the legislative record. In one bill about allowing the president to regulate industries for fair wages, there, the white Southern Democrats pretty much just flat out said, we want most of this relief to go to white people.
5: They wanted to have white wages and black wages.
0: Like really written out that way.
5: Written out that way because that's how they operated in the South. That was quickly defeated because the the Northern Democrats just weren't going to go for it. So the Northern Democrats in Congress made what's been called a devil's bargain. The compromise with them was, okay. you can't say this only goes to white people. (laughs) So the compromise is you can exclude certain occupations. That's okay, And we'll live with that. So we will exclude agricultural workers. We will exclude domestic workers.
0: And it just so happened that workers with those jobs were disproportionately black, disproportionately women and poor. By the time the unemployment insurance system was being debated a few years later, instead of bringing up the idea of excluding Black workers explicitly, Southern Democrats just said, we want to be able to exclude farm workers and domestic workers. Wink, wink.
5: That's basically it. So we will say agricultural workers, but in the South that means we don't want Black people to get this. That's what they did.
0: And just to play out why, historian Alice O'Connor's take is that it was also about keeping labor cheap. Like, say you owned a cotton farm and needed seasonal workers to come pick your cotton. If they get some money when they're not working, that might make them a little less desperate and give them a little more bargaining power to ask for higher wages the next season.
6: This kind of protection, it empowers workers. It it puts them in at least somewhat less dire circumstances, such that they're not necessarily beholden to one local employer.
1: From the moment farm workers and domestic workers were left out of unemployment insurance, civil rights and labor activists came out against that exclusion. And after decades of pressure, domestic workers and agricultural workers were brought into the fold in the
0: 1970s. But even though those categories of jobs that had at one point been disproportionately jobs that Black people had, even though those job categories were eventually included in unemployment benefits, The 40 years that those jobs were excluded left a lasting legacy of inequality, a generation of certain workers who didn't get the same safety nets that everyone else had. That had a huge impact on their ability to weather hard times, to build wealth, to climb up the economic ladder. And by the time farm workers and domestic workers were included in unemployment insurance, there were plenty of other ways that Black people and other people of color were shut out of the system.
1: And there still are, because, yeah, the language of the law has changed, but we still see this idea that this is just for people who we think deserve it play out in just about everything the unemployment insurance system does.
0: So now we're going to talk about ways the state unemployment systems have kept people out in more recent times. For one, there are all these complicated eligibility requirements.
1: Right. There's a lot of fine print. You have to show you lost your job through no fault of your own, that you're actively looking for work, you've had a stable work history, and you've made a minimum amount of money. Alice O'Connor, the historian, says that hits certain groups pretty hard.
6: Non-white workers are more likely to be part-time employed. And because minority workers are more prone to precarious Employment, they are are more likely not to be eligible in the first place for unemployment insurance.
1: Sounds like the people who are in the most precarious employment positions are the people who don't have access to unemployment insurance.
6: That is exactly right. People who are in a precarious position have the least access to them. That's
1: the way our system works. During the Great Recession in 2008, unemployment was highest for black workers. But black workers had a much lower rate for receiving unemployment insurance. About 24 percent compared with whites, 33 percent.
0: And since the Great Recession, there are all these other restrictions states put into their systems that made it harder to get benefits.
1: Like in Florida, to get unemployment benefits, people normally have to prove they've already applied to at least five jobs. In Michigan, a state system disqualified people if they didn't state the exact same reason for losing their job that their employer put.
0: Wisconsin passed a law that said if an employee makes the same mistake more than once after being warned, they can be considered fired for cause and denied unemployment benefits. Some states say they've had to do this because their unemployment benefit trust funds are running out of money.
5: The way the system was designed is you would collect the tax when things were well, Lots of people are employed and you would build up this reserve and then in an economic downturn, you would draw down on the reserve. But Bill
1: Sprig says in the last few decades, states have been lowering unemployment taxes as a way to lure companies to set up shop. But lower taxes means less money in the unemployment benefits fund to pay out. So states are left with this dilemma.
5: Either raise taxes or cut benefits. And the sad story is states choose, let's cut benefits. (laughs)
1: Which is where all those eligibility requirements come in. They get harder to qualify and there are fewer benefits to pay out. And for the people who do qualify, there's always the option, just pay them less.
0: Which brings us to the second way state unemployment systems have come to limit access to unemployment benefits in recent times. In the U.S., the unemployment insurance system was always designed to make benefits temporary and to pay just a fraction of what your job paid.
1: So on average in the U.S., benefits normally last six months.
0: But since the Great Recession, states have chipped away at the generosity of even those limited benefits. North Carolina dropped its limit to three months.
1: As far as money goes, you can get as low as 24 percent of your average wage, in recent years, the lowest benefit has been in Mississippi, which maxes out at 235 bucks a week. The highest, Massachusetts, has been up to $742 per week.
0: And these decisions about unemployment benefits, about how long they should last and how much they should be, pretty quickly scratch at this deeper question that I've started thinking of as the laziness question. Some people wonder, if unemployment benefits are too generous, will people be so happy to be out of work that they'll want to stop working? Bob Newhart, the comedian, actually has a bit about this.
4: I was once, um, worked for the Illinois State Unemployment Compensation Board. It's true, I worked behind the counter. And we got, the we got $60 a week, and the claimants at that time got 55 it's true. <laughs> and, and they only had to come in one day a week, you know? <laughs>
3: So, so I um, arranged to get fired and wound up, you know, coming in one day a week and losing five dollars. I mean, that's you know, kind of a comedic side of this, but the the reality is, people value their time. They they value their families.
0: That's Matt Weidinger, a longtime congressional staffer and Republican policy guy who's now at the American Enterprise Institute, and he says, "Sure, the Bob Newhart bit is for laughs." But he thinks it's a serious issue, too.
3: Clearly, the closer you get to saying that we're going to pay somebody as much in benefits not to work as they were getting in their paycheck while they were working, a lot of people are going to look at that and say, well, why bother? Why should I go to work?
0: Though, actually, even Matt says that given how our system works, fundamentally, at least in normal times,
3: you know, people want to work and they want the security of work, which is a lot more secure than... Collecting unemployment benefits.
0: When it comes to the amount of money people get from unemployment benefits, what research shows is that higher payments could lead some unemployed workers to stay out of work a little longer. But higher payments also let unemployed people spend more, which in turn allows businesses to create more jobs.
1: Larry Katz, the Harvard economist, has actually studied this. And if you compare a state with a higher benefit versus a state with a lower one, Evidence suggests, overall, the unemployment rate won't be higher even if people get more money when they're out of work.
0: As for how long benefits last, some people do tend to stay unemployed a little bit longer if their benefits last longer, partly because they're able to hold out for a better job. But, Larry says, those delays in finding a job?
4: They can be offset by more active support, so helping people search for jobs, training, and other things seem to more than offset
1: that.
0: So that's what we know about how things work in normal times.
1: But of course we are not in normal times. During a pandemic, we want people to stay home. And so politicians on both sides of the aisle agreed that we want to make unemployment benefits generous enough that people can stay home and not have to look for work, at least at first.
0: The CARES Act, the huge coronavirus relief package Congress passed in late March, has put some temporary changes on how unemployment benefits work. Right now, you don't have to prove you're looking for new work. And there's a new special type of unemployment benefit for part-time workers, for people who earn too little to usually qualify, and for independent contractors.
1: Congress also made benefits last 13 weeks longer than whatever the state time limit is. And one of the most controversial things Congress did, giving an extra $600 a week on top of a state unemployment benefit.
0: And in some places, that extra $600 a week would mean some lower-income workers, like service and retail and fast food workers, might be actually making more in unemployment benefits than at the job they used to have. And that set up this big debate between Republicans and Democrats.
3: Under this bill, as it's written now, the government will pay many Americans more to be on government assistance than they would make
1: if they are working at their regular jobs.
4: Oh, my God, imagine that.
5: Somebody who's making 12 bucks an hour might be making a few bucks more for four months. Oh, my word! Will the universe survive?
0: Honestly, one of the most animated C-SPAN clips around these days. But it turns out that, yes, with that extra $600 from the feds, according to estimates from the University of Chicago, up to two-thirds of people getting unemployment benefits could make more than they made on the job.
1: And some folks, like Matt Weidinger, think that could put pressure on businesses to pay people more.
3: You could look at the $600 as sort of a a lever that's headed in that direction. If employers, in effect, have to raise wages to attract people off of unemployment benefits. Which Matt says could
1: ultimately make businesses raise prices in order to pay people more.
0: Of course, with so many people out of work, employers might not feel that pressure to raise wages.
1: But for some employees, that extra 600 bucks is making them think twice about their wage. Like Forrest Clark. He's a grill cook at a Cracker Barrel in Tifton, Georgia. His job just reopened. I'm almost mad to go back to work. Um, it definitely makes me think about how they uh, choose to pay me so little. At Cracker Barrel, Forrest makes 11 bucks an hour. When he went on unemployment, he started earning more than he ever had $760 a week. 160 bucks from Georgia, plus 600 from the feds. And then his manager asked if he was willing to come back to work. It was just, um, well, great. (laughs) Because um, we have to tell them that we're able to come back to work. Because if we don't, they will, um, that's justification right there. They don't have to pay unemployment at all. So it's a choice, but it's really not a choice. If Forrest says he won't go back, he's technically quitting his job, which makes him ineligible for unemployment benefits. And yeah, there's the money side of this, but he's worried about his health in a restaurant full of customers. His girlfriend's pregnant though, and he needs the money. So he's going back and bringing his own mask.
4: I feel like we're just
1: kind of seen as disposable. We're just kind of like the lesser people.
0: Meanwhile, states are doing some pretty aggressive things to make sure people like Forrest get back to work, even if they don't feel safe or risk losing their unemployment benefits. States like Iowa have a form employers can fill out to report people who are claiming unemployment benefits after refusing to go back to their jobs.
1: Nebraska said if your job's available, but you keep claiming unemployment benefits, that could be considered fraud. South Carolina explicitly said workers can't get unemployment benefits if they choose not to work to avoid the virus or to take care of kids whose schools have been shut down.
0: This could mean fewer people will be filing for unemployment benefits soon. That takes pressure off a state's unemployment trust fund and the cost to the states. But at the same time, it puts pressure on a lot of workers to have to decide between protecting their health and their livelihoods.
1: As far as Candace Gordon, the would-be sex toy entrepreneur who works at a Denny's in Georgia, last time I talked to her she hadn't heard from Denny's whether they're reopening she walked by the store recently it was dark Candace knows if they offer her her job back she pretty much has to say yes
2: yeah I'm nervous about it and I'm and I'm scared about it but I have no choice I gotta go out here if I don't <laughs> then you know I'm right back at square one I'm in danger of, of losing everything again you know it's a catch 22
1: as of 8 weeks after filing for unemployment, she hasn't gotten any money or any answers. Candace's bills are now piling up.
2: What I don't want to do is uh turn on that Lyft app. But if I don't hear anything, I'm going to drive Lyft because I have to I have to at least keep my phone on. Like how can I call for help if my phone's not on? So if, if I have to get out here and get on this road, I'll do it. I'm terrified,
0: but I'll do it if I have to. Because Candace has rent to pay. And for millions of Americans, paying for housing right now is creating problems of its own.
1: Yet yeah, we're entering the COVID pandemic with the biggest wealth gap that our country has seen
3: in 100 years. And so if you are literally living paycheck to paycheck and then you lose that paycheck and you have
1: nothing to fall back on, then you are in a very, very dire um, situation indeed.
0: More about that next time on The Uncertain Hour. Our producers are Peter Balanon-Rosen, Chris Julin, and Caitlin Esch. Our editor is Catherine Winter. Our intern, Daniel Martinez. Our engineer is Daniel Ramirez. Our digital team is Tony Wagner and Erica Phillips. Sitara Nieves is the executive director of On Demand at Marketplace. Deborah Clark is the senior vice president and general manager. And I'm your host and Marketplace senior correspondent, Chrissy Clark.
2: This feels amazing being interviewed. I feel like Beyonce.